Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetics has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. Fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetics provides accuracy with the lowest false positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetics.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. This is the news for the week of September 23rd. Uh, so first up, though, before we get into the news, uh, we have a couple of quick announcements. DerbyCon is holding its first ever mental health and wellness workshop where I'll actually be speaking. So to help support their efforts, please go to derbycon.com slash wellness. Uh, they have opportunities to donate, of course, for any uh, sort of goods that are not purchased by, by the donations. Uh, the rest of it will be donated to charities supporting mental health and wellness in our community. Uh, of course, also join us for our webcast with Logarithm about tips and tricks for defending the enterprise using open source tools. That webcast will be this Thursday, September the 27th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, finally, of course, check out our on-demand material. Some of our previously recorded webcasts are now available on demand at securityweekly.com slash on demand. Of course, there's Logarithm, Endgame, Black Hills InfoSec, and a number of other awesome webcasts. It looks like we got Signal Sciences in there as well and Javelin Networks. So uh, definitely go check that out. I enjoy quite a lot of that material, and I think you will too. So with that being said... April, where do you want to get started on the news this week? There's a, you know, a plethora of stories for us to jump into. I think we should talk about my cloud. Not my cloud, my cloud. Oh, well, <laughs> your cloud uh, is, of course, you know, puffy and very happy. But uh, Western Digital's cloud, on the other hand, not so much. So story number one under bugs, breaches, and more. Um, I don't know. April, did you want to describe the vulnerability on this? I'm Again, I'm happy to do so, but uh, what I understand, it's authentication bypass. Yeah, if you hooked your um, hooked your storage up to the internet, uh, it was vulnerable. And oh, that's great. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Go figure. That sounds, like, that sounds like a great idea. I, um, for... <laughs> I think what made this unique, though, is that it was vulnerable for like a year after the company was notified of this. Yeah, it's like, yeah, this one, I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. So um, what I ended up seeing here was it, basically they have this authentication bypass, which basically says, okay, look, I don't even need to know your password. I just need to know that you're a user and I can just get in, um, which is pretty, pretty terrible, first of all. And yeah, it was Remco Vermwellen. I'm going to pronounce their name terribly wrong, but they found a privilege per bug that basically allowed them to go ahead and bypass and gain complete control over the user's data, reported it. And of course, Western Digital is like, oh, yeah, we'll get around to fixing that now after like it's been gone for a year. So reported in April 2017, still not fixed. Well, they released a uh, hot fix 
uh, two yeah. days two days after the story broke. So I guess the moral of the story is um, if it makes the news, they will patch it. Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I saw a story uh, similar to this. Gosh, I want to say earlier this week uh, or maybe it was over the weekend. But um, someone was basically saying, look, sunshine is the best kind of disinfectant here. And quite frankly, it's sad. Uh, but the more that we see companies dragged through the mud publicly in the news with situations that they just don't address uh, more quickly, you know, they actually respond to these sort of things. And so. I don't know why they didn't bother fixing it. I don't know if it was negligence, if it was a situation where, um, you know, it was a cost uh, factor. Somehow, somewhere, somebody accepted the risk, which either tells me they didn't understand the risk or they did understand the risk and they didn't care. Uh, or in this case, maybe they did care, but they didn't care enough because, well, you know, new new software needs to be written. We don't have time to fix bugs. But yeah, they of course touted out the the usual line that they take software, uh, they take the security of this seriously, and uh, and basically they're going to have patches out. Of course, uh, at the time of this article being written, they said within a few weeks. Uh, they had already had something like I don't know, fourteen months to deal with this, fifteen months. I don't believe that firmware patches of any kind take that long to develop in today's modern development culture. Do you, April? I mean, you see development a lot as, as well. Is there any way that patching this could take that long, realistically? No. I mean, I would guess that it probably slipped through the cracks or something. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that that was sitting in a backlog for 14 months being reported up to management. It probably just didn't make it into the system correctly. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's hard to even <laughs> fathom how that could happen. Um, but well, one thing I was wondering was, like, so you're talking about accepting the risk. The user had to accept some sort of risk by hooking it up to the Internet. But most users of my cloud are probably not that savvy. So I'm wondering if there's, like, some sort of pop-up or something that would um, warn them about the dangers of connecting your data to the Internet. Honestly, I don't know, um, other than to say that it's, like, yeah, first of all, a lot of us use cloud-based storage, right? Like we use our Dropbox or we use like Google Drive or we use all, all those other sort of things. But there we're actually mitigating some of the risk by putting that risk onto the company that is storing that data on our behalf, right? Here it's quite literally you're hooking up your drive sitting on your desk or wherever it is uh, and it's now connecting out to the internet to store it in their cloud storage. Um, what's What's crazy to me is I'm thinking about this back in like, this is a login mechanism problem uh, with authentication bypass, which tells me simply they weren't doing input validation. And somewhere in that logic flow, it basically just said, yep, you're good. Which, by the way, probably because this is looking at a SQL database, I wouldn't be surprised if this authentication bypass is something like, I don't know, SQL injection, right? Like or one equals one um, type thing where it makes me wonder Given that there was authentication bypass here, how many customers' data was actually compromised by this? And if they even have a record of that, right? Uh, so I, I can't imagine people are going to go out of their way to sue Western Digital in this situation uh, because this probably isn't used by like large companies who would go out and go after them because, hey, everybody's Western Digital drive was connected to your cloud. Um, but yeah, this is just, I don't know. It screams dumpster fire development to me. No comment. So, yeah. I don't know if you have <laughs> any, more, any more to say about that, but that's all I have. <laughs> but they we'll did, they did encourage um, uh, responsible disclosure, which I thought was interesting. 
especially um, yeah. if they're not going to respond with it. They mentioned the 90-day responsible disclosure rule. On, on, uh, if they're not going to respond within the 90 days, I don't know why they would encourage the responsible disclosure. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Talking to uh, my good friend Josh Corman about it, he, he hates the term responsible disclosure, whereas uh, Casey Ellis of Bug Crowder actually really likes the term responsible disclosure. I always lean on Katie Masuris's coordinated disclosure, and even in this case, like the researcher was trying to coordinate with you over fixing the thing, and you just didn't want to coordinate. I don't know. If I were the researcher in this case, it's it's almost a situation of you got to think of uh, of impact here. And um, in this case, it's it's hard drives with data, which sure is important and hopefully is encrypted. But at the same time, uh, it's not lives at stake. And I think that you could probably reasonably say, OK, look, at 90 days, I'm just going to tell everybody on the Internet unless you actually go and fix this thing. So I don't know. I, I, I would say this, right? People uh, in the news media related to security are pretty easy to contact and are usually willing to run a story like this if you provide them enough details. So, yeah, if you're a company thinking about maybe just not fixing that thing that was reported to you, you probably should look at fixing it. So I'll just leave it there. Um, speaking of other interesting things related to code and fixing, uh, story number two under Bugs, Breaches, and More, and actually somewhat related story number three, uh, are both related to credit card data being stolen based on breaches of the company, uh, basically like the, the checkout uh, area. So story number two is related to Newegg, and story number three is actually related to uh, hackers now going after local government payment sites. So, for example, if you want to uh, go ahead and, I don't know, renew your registration on your car, for example, they might have a, a checkout that you can do that online. So I thought that this is interesting because this is coming off the back April of... Uh, the British Airways breach, right? And it looks like, in this case, the Newegg breach is almost exactly the same. Did, did you, uh, was there anything out of this article that you pulled up that you thought was interesting? So they got, it. <laughs> the attackers brought the code down from 22 lines of code to eight. Impressive. Um, I, uh, they used HTTPS uh, that was signed by Komodo. So it uh, looked like valid traffic, and they also uh, they registered a domain newegstats.com. So that got me thinking about how you could almost do reputational monitoring if you had some sort of capability to do this. I don't know if it exists, but if you could look, and it's much harder with like ba.com because ba appears in a lot of different domains. But if you could watch for domains that are being registered that match Newegg, that's, a pr that's something that you know you probably would want to know about. And then again, with uh, with signed TLS or SSL certificates, looking for your brand name in the in from the vendors that are providing those. And of course, it gets a little more tricky with like Let's Encrypt and self-signed and things like that. But it seems like a good way to detect potential phishing or um, or these uh, skimming uh, attacks just by looking at the domain names. So I actually, so to your point, first of all, yes, there are in fact ways to go ahead and check for uh, if your intellectual property is used in a name for registration of a, a web property, that that service definitely does exist. Um, the other side of it though, when you you know relate to like Let's Encrypt, I believe Let's Encrypt is part of the certificate uh, transparency reports that go out. I mean, I would imagine that they are, right? Um, maybe not, but again, being one of those things that's supported pretty widely by, you know, Google, Firefox, et cetera, right? Um, they, they probably are going to go ahead and, and report that stuff back out. And so, yeah, to your point, if you're a company that's not monitoring the use of your, 
um, intellectual property or your naming conventions for your website, especially if your entire model is in fact a website that's e-commerce, that's like selling things, um, you probably want to get on monitoring those stuff. And what concerned me or what I thought was interesting here is how did they get the code into the site, right? Like, did they did they do some sort of uh, server-side injection where they changed the actual uh, site HTML as it was on the server, and maybe they ran that periodically so that way any updates to the to the server itself was you know getting overwritten, or um, or did they actually like break into Newegg and then add something into the code base that just totally got you know got pushed and merged into production? That's that's the side of things that uh, I always look back at and I think to myself like there are ways to do this from the outside that reasonably could actually be be leveraged to to cause this sort of situation to come about. But in my mind, um, if you've got version control in place, you'd know when someone was trying to change your your checkout code, uh, and, and therefore you'd probably have a pretty high indicator. I don't know. Was there? Did you catch any indication in your read of this, uh, April, that seemed to indicate you know how they got the code in? Because I didn't catch anything of that on my side. I didn't either, but I did think it was really clever. <laughs> I hate to say this, but it was really clever the way that they did it because they they put it the code mid workflow. So um, as you're going through the checkout, it doesn't show up on like the first checkout page. Like you have to get to where you're actually entering the credit card information, and then it just had some JavaScript or it looks like JavaScript that. Um, uh, would call an, a URL, which was newegstats.com, and um, it would submit a post on a, on a form. So um, by have, not having it on the main page, a let's say if you had like uh, just scanning of the, the, the pages, if you just some automated scan running, um, it would probably only get to that first uh, iteration of the workflow. It, unless you have some sort of customized Automa uh, automatic scan so that you're actually entering in data every time you may not even notice that anything was happening yeah i mean in some ways uh, you think that things like content security policy for example might have helped them out depending again on the the attack vector here um there are any number of protections that it seems like maybe they they didn't have in place but uh, I can imagine that after this has happened, you're you're probably going to see Newegg, uh, you know, be a pretty secure site for a little while. Uh, I'd say give it, you know, at least a good six months or so, um, maybe just in time for those Thanksgiving uh, deals that come out uh, every year, you know, on on Black Friday, as people always say here in the U.S. So, um, shouldn't yeah, the, I don't know. Shouldn't the browser be like looking for things like this? A little bit, yeah. I mean, um, in this case, the post was to a domain that wasn't actually uh, the same domain that this was living on. So, yeah, the, some of the, the rules around, um, you know, the way that cookies work and the way that uh, the rules that based on your site configuration that allow you to make requests to, uh, you know, out-of-band sites, right? Like, so cross-site request forgery is is quite literally uh, this in reverse, where you're making a request to a site that's not from the site itself, right? So if I was making a request to newegg.com from this newegstats.com, cross-site request forgery protections would actually protect you there. I haven't looked too deeply into if they would protect you on the outbound side as well. My gut feeling is that, yeah, probably. Um, and, and so who knows, right? But it, it sounds like uh, they got caught a little bit with their pants down here in terms of, you know, just like the code got in there, whether it was server-side request forgery uh, or even server-side injection or even uh, an actual breach of the company. Either way, I'm sure that they're reeling from this quite a lot. 
uh, as is British Airways, it seems like. Um, moving on from that one, though, I did want to talk a little bit about story number three under bugs, breaches, and more, which is, uh, in this case, that it looks like you know credit card uh, attacks are happening on local sites as well. The thing that got me here is, so Fire, I was the one that uh, basically confirmed that this Click2Gov servers operated by local governments across the U.S. Uh, are likely vulnerable uh, on the web server side to things like uploaded malware uh, or even, you know, uh, just basic, again, server-side injection or, or any number of other things that are causing uh, log data, such as, you know, credit card information that's in those logs to get siphoned out. What concerned me here, though, is this, right? Um, so basically, the log data is containing the credit card information, which by itself must be like a PCI violation. Oh, yeah. uh, and then secondly, that they could intercept it while it's unencrypted on the network, right? Like, come on. Are they even trying? I, I don't know. This this story just irked me quite a lot. April, what did you think of this? I I noticed the PCI noncompliance as well. I, I was thinking, you know, maybe they're not storing the credit card data in the logs. Maybe they, it, from from the wording, it said that it was, um, it was sifting through server log data for credit card data. That to me sounded like maybe they were looking for, oh, I accidentally entered my credit card number in the name field or something like that. So when it got submitted, maybe it logged that part. But um, if they're getting uh, the, the three digit code and the expiration date and everything, then from logs, that's, yeah, they're definitely, that's a problem. Um, the the one of the interesting things that I thought was um, in Tyler, Texas, uh, they reported that only in-person and online payments were affected. So phone payments were not affected. So that made me think, like, what are they doing differently over the phone to take payments if um, if in-person payments are affected? I I just didn't understand that. Yeah, you, you think that like in-person payments wouldn't be affected, right? Because um, maybe they're actually like running the card right there, right. but that maybe the over-the-phone payments would be affected because they're just using the website, right? Like effectively, that's what you'd think the, the workflow would be here. But who knew, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> maybe what they're doing is like they're actually like they're 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 one ear, you know, they're talking to you. The other ear, like they put you on mute and they're like talking directly to the card person to like run the card at the same time. I don't know. Other than to say that like people have have hackers all up in their stuff. Uh, of course, these things are running Oracle Web Logic, which immediately makes me shudder. Um, and of course, it's run by local governments, which, by the way, probably don't have a security team. And if they do. Um, no offense to our good sysadmin friends, especially on the ops side, but it's probably a, a sysadmin who retired, came out of retirement, understand, like basically said, oh yeah, I know Oracle and is, is running this, uh, you know, while, while collecting a paycheck just because, um, I don't necessarily trust almost any government to run this sort of stuff, especially given the amount of breaches and other things that they've had lately. But here we are with, uh, with, you know, data breaches all up in our, car registration stuff i'm now gonna have to go down to town hall to re-register my car at some point um i think they so, made yeah, the right decision that. though in trying to outsource the payment and everything rather than trying to like roll their own code to do oh, for checkouts sure. and things like that so uh, they made the right choice but there's still risk. it's just a different risk 
Right. In this case, it's the, hey, we're going to use your software. I'm sure that our tax dollars are probably being spent to procure this software. Uh, and then the software itself is is garbage. I don't know. It, it seems like the sort of thing that you see in, in political kickback campaigns where someone spins up a, a company, does really shoddy development on it, sells it back uh, to the government using the tax dollars of the citizenry and makes out like bank i don't know i'm i'm gonna have to do some digging on this i'm not an investigative journalist by any means but i really get the feeling that there's probably more dirt here than we're letting on so yeah stay tuned if i go on an angry rant about this at some point you'll know why <laughs> well luckily um, credit freezes are um available and free now so that's true just in that time is true <laughs> yes just in time for the holiday season um <laughs> So um, speaking of, of uh, you know, things that put put me on ice or as it were, maybe get me fired up is this whole John Hancock uh, situation with their their new policies. Right. Like we have been railing about this uh, as being a potential issue on in the security space for, I don't know, probably at least a few years. Paul's probably talked about this a lot more than than either you or I, April. But there, John Hancock, which is a, a large North American uh, life insurance company, in fact, it's one of the oldest, uh, is now no longer going to be underwriting traditional life insurance policies. Instead, it's only going to be selling interactive policies that track fitness and health data through wearable devices and smartphones, uh, which, ugh, like, I cringe, and then I think of that movie Gattaca, like, right away. Um I don't know. What were your thoughts on this, April? So I, I'm just clamped. <laughs> I may have misread it, but what I read was that they were going to, yes, only be offering uh, fitness tracked policies, but there seemed to be one policy that you could enter your own stats rather than having a wearable. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like that, there's all kinds of fraud that I just started to think about. Like, what if, like, as I have my 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 Apple Watch here, um, <laughs> I saw this fraud. I was thinking, like, what if I just wore five Apple Watches for somebody, and I started a service where I just go work out? Yeah, no, I that that's Gattaca. That is the movie Gattaca, folks. You don't know. You know spoiler alert: you don't even have to watch it anymore. Um, watch it. Get it. Your Apple Watch. Um, so. In this case, yeah, it's like, first of all, yes, people sharing watches with others or registering watches with others who are, in fact, fit and then selling fitness as a service, like it'd be your fast. I don't know. Um, I literally wrote that yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your fitness as a service. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, we're going to have to monetize this somehow, April. Uh, clearly, I'm not very fit, but my wife likes to run half marathon. So, hey, folks, if uh, if you're open to fitness as a service. <laughs> Uh, hit me up. Uh, I think that counts up. as insurance fraud, but um, oh, fair, true. Yeah, Don't hit yeah. me up, actually. Yeah. Um, um, no. uh, so uh, the other thing I was thinking about was um, how so so they are providing devices to people um, as part of the uh, service that they're offering, but I was wondering if you manage this, the device or if it's managed like a BYOD device where they have control over it and they have a policy on the device somehow. I don't even know if you can do that with a, with a watch, but um, I, yeah. I was just curious, like who is managing the device? And then when I get home and this connects to my network or this connects to my LTE or whatever, then it's in my ecosystem with my other devices. How do I keep it away from, like, can I, have like a guest VLAN or an IOT VLAN where I put all this stuff and they can't talk to each other. Like I, it just raises so, so many questions. 
Right. Like who owns the device? First of all, right. Is it you or them? If you cancel your policy, do you have to give back the device? And then secondly, you're right. Who maintains it? Right. So does it does it get patches? Uh, is my data secure if they monitor or maintain the device and it doesn't get patched and it gets hacked and my data gets stolen? Am I liable? Are they liable? That's true. And, and um, this has a microphone. I mean, if this gets right? hacked and uh, some, uh, yeah. Ugh. Someone's listening to the show live <laughs> right now. <laughs> right off your Apple Watch. I mean, yeah, it's it's a situation where it's just like, I, I can't possibly fathom uh, this being reality, and yet here we are. And apparently, by the way, it, they like cite in the article that it's popular in places like Europe. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like they are so security conscious. This is just like I wanted to rage and pull out the hair that I don't even have on my head. Um, so yeah, it, needless to say, I'm really disappointed in John Hancock's decision here. I get the feeling that this is just going to be the first of many situations that we encounter. And yeah, we probably will see people committing insurance fraud uh, by either strapping their watch to somebody else or um, you know, maybe hacking uh, the, the actual metrics on it itself. But I don't know. I just, I'm not really excited about this other than to say I'm never going to be buying a watch of this nature. So at some point, I'm just not going to be insurable by by life insurance. It's just going to happen. Well, for now, um, you can still choose another provider. But if everybody moves to this model, which is more of a traditional risk-based uh, model for the insurance companies, um, if privacy-conscious people are choosing other companies, then the free market will fix this, hopefully. Um, well, <laughs> But but everybody wants one of those fancy new watches, April. What do you mean? <laughs> They're just giving them away. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's eventually going to take over the market, and we're all doomed to be slaves to our new, uh, you know, insurance watch where watch giving overlords. Um, it brings a whole new meaning to who's watching the watchers. But <laughs> <laughs> but with that being said. <laughs> Um, I also wanted to cite, by the way, uh, you know, my lack of faith in uh, both governments and perhaps even in some cases insurance agencies on protecting data because lo and behold, the State Department confirms a data breach under story number two for if you build it, they will come uh, like every time, every time someone says, oh, yeah, we should have key escrow for the government or uh, they should have some sort of encryption backdoor or I don't know. They basically want to be able to access our private devices uh, with subpoena, of course, but they want to be able to do so. My mind immediately goes to situations just like this one. April, what were your thoughts on this article? Well, how so I, I thought it was really, really weird that um, they're using Office 365 um, and they said 11 percent of the um, agency devices uh, only 11% had multi-factor authentication. <laughs> I just... So I, I... Here's the thing is, I like to say they say only 1% of, of you know, their, their devices were compromised here. 1% of their, their data was compromised. But in my mind, the little asterisk that goes right behind there is that they know of, right? Like, again, they only had a very small uh, distribution of two-factor authentication, Pretty clearly, two-factor authentication is a big deal. I mean, come on. We've been making a huge deal about it from the 2016 election. And uh, by the way, like these YubiKeys and things like that, pretty inexpensive. You'd think that maybe they could just, you know, distribute them to everybody everywhere. I don't know. It's just, yeah, it 
the whole federal government uh, security thing, I kind of just want to cry a little bit and laugh at the same time and realize that, you know, hopefully it's just as bad everywhere else. Because if we ever end up in World War Three, we're totally screwed, like totally screwed. Our data is going to be in the insurance companies that are going to get breached. And then our government's just going to be like, oh, yeah, all that data you gave to us, <clears throat> OPM. Uh, yeah, that's now been breached, too. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm being a sourpuss this week and just like, you know, putting the kibosh on everything. So, well, um, this was, uh, there was no MFA and it's a legal requirement for them to do it. It seems like one of the simplest things that you could roll out. It's already built into 365. It's not like they're writing code. All they have to do is flip a switch and require their users to use MFA. I did not really understand why it wouldn't, why that would be so difficult. Um, yeah. I, uh, did you see the letter that the senators wrote, um, that asked, uh, <laughs> they asked for three years of attack data, uh, for systems located abroad? Yeah, this is like, yeah, okay, good luck getting that. Did they even have three years of the data, first of all? So I don't even know. That's like the ultimate um, FOIA. <laughs> Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, they don't they don't have that data. That data's gone. <laughs> and if they did have it, they're probably like burning it. They're like, no, delete that drive. That, del log into the MyCloud drive that's now been compromised and go delete that data because <laughs> that's how they're collecting their logs, probably. And they uh, they uh, the OMB said that the State Department's uh, readiness is at high risk. So that means that there's other problems. And the State Department is a particularly juicy target for nation states you think? who have well, advanced capabilities and tons of person power to throw at things. You wonder why Secretary of State or then Secretary of State Clinton ran her own email server. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, moving on, though, because I made you read it, uh, as much as it was a very long article, story number three under If You Build It, They Will Come, The Man Who Broke Ticketmaster. This was actually a pretty cool article for as long-winded as it was um, because it actually talked about, you know, the historical views of uh, someone who, who basically was a scalper, right? Like he went out and, and grabbed a bunch of tickets to a bunch of different uh, shows uh, and then eventually basically got uh, got caught and is now, uh, you know, either facing jail or is, is in the process of being... Um, you know, uh, prosecuted, but this was a, this was kind of a neat story, especially because it doesn't actually involve bots and automation as much as one would think. Uh, what were your thoughts on this April since I gave you the homework? Yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's a really long article. Um, so I think, I thought this was particularly heinous because tickets are already really expensive. <laughs> So by jacking yep. up the prices, it just makes it worse for all of us. Um, but this really reminded me of uh, InfoSec because it's a cat and mouse game between the people who are trying to break the system and the people that are trying to um, uh, fix the system and defend against it. So, um, so now today he's working with uh, artists and teams to try to fix the problems in, um, in the, the process and the, the systemic problems. Um, but I, I also thought it was really interesting when uh, he talks about how back it, back in my day, <laughs> which is true for me as well, um, when you had to call Ticketmaster, he would use social engineering techniques to um, to call a little bit before, uh, let's say, 10 a.m. when the tickets went on sale, and he would uh, like chat up the uh, the person on the phone, and then. Um, 
uh, build some rapport and eventually say, hey, would you mind reserving two tickets or four tickets to the show that opens in 30 seconds? And then they would do it. And he, he even knew like the keys that the, the person would have to hit to order the tickets and everything. And he, I just thought that that was pretty genius. Yeah, I mean, like, this is traditional hacking 101, right? He hacked the people. Mm -hmm. um, what was amazing to me is then he basically hired, like, a boiler room setup where he had almost everybody do this, right? And so he'd get, like, in the very top of the article, they talked something like 496 out of 500 uh, tickets that were available for uh, U2 in New York, 492 out of 500 in Boston, 496 out of, nine, out of 500 in L.A. Like, holy crap. They, like this guy definitely like robbed the bank. And then, of course, when you turn this around, like he makes, I don't know, probably like a 4X markup on each ticket. So, yeah, crazy money, crazy money. Um, there was, yeah, it, it, what? I'm sorry. <laughs> there was an interesting oh, use of ML in, in the scenario, too, because um, they, when, uh, the, the ticket master captcha. So when the, uh, when he had to, there's a, a he made a very important legal distinction that um, that they didn't hack CAPTCHA, they didn't break CAPTCHA. What they did was um, there were only thirty thousand unique images that were used in CAPTCHA at the time, so they put them in a database, and um, and they downloaded all the, all the images, put them in a database, and then they um, they taught the bot how to recognize those images. So um, they were uh, just answering the CAPTCHA; they weren't actually hacking it. I thought that was really, right. really clever. Yeah, this this is like uh, you know the I'm sure the the team at Ticketmaster was like thirty thousand's enough. Nobody's ever gonna have thirty thousand. And then these days you look at thirty thousand as like a number for machine learning, and you're like, that's like not even a snack. Like that's that's like okay, we're done. Ten seconds later, we now have all the data. Um, yeah, that that was incredible. For those that are willing to put in a little bit of reading time, again, sorry, April, I didn't realize it was this long either. Uh, but at story number three under, if you build it, they will come. Uh, just being cognizant of the time, I know we've run a little bit long today. Uh, the last thing I just want to leave folks with is uh, two things. So go to Food for Thought, story number two. It's new security settings available for iOS 12 for those of you that have iPhone devices. Uh, and then, of course, or iOS devices, I guess. Lastly, the commit strip. How long will it be alive? I'm not going to spoil it for everybody, but needless to say, your code will outlive you. Just think about that for a minute. Anyway, thank you everyone for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy.